Cheryl, you were just powering through those announcements. My goodness, it was like a snowplow just going through. It was amazing. Well, uh, for those of you, um, just want to give you a quick update on the Normandy project. So if you weren't here, I can't explain the whole thing, but we're basically, in response to a vision, we're buying a building downtown overlooking the State House to release worship and to house girls coming out of human trafficking. Kind of that missing step, once they're kind of clean and sober, um, the funding typically runs out on programs, and so they need a place to stay, continue to get uh, rid of the trauma and get uh, made whole. And so very, very exciting. And so you can give on the normandyproject.org. You can watch the video there. But I just encourage you guys, you can give every week. Just make sure you write the Normandy Project in the memo. And so thank you for those of you who have already pledged and given. So we need $250,000 by May 31st. And so no sweat. It's going to be awesome. So thanks for that. And we have uh, some of our conquering heroes have returned from the badlands of the jungles of Uganda. So John and Beth, you guys could stand up. Everybody. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. We'll be interviewing them uh, in, in the coming weeks here. And Beth, you look so cute with, uh, what do you call that, dreadlocks? What is it, braids? Well, so is what I know. It's super cute. So welcome back. Good to have you guys in the house. Well, happy Resurrection Day. Yes. It's good. You know, a, a lens is an interesting technology. What it does, it actually bends light or it, uh, it distorts light so that you can actually see something more clearly or actually have a more distorted view of it. And so I remember the first time I got glasses, I didn't really know that I needed them until um, I flunked the driver's test with the eyesight thing. And I'm like, hold on here, this is bad. And so I went and I got glasses. I remember driving from the first time I drove and I went and parked somewhere and I was so enamored with how well I could see. I like didn't park the car right. I must have like, I don't know what I left it in, but it had rolled backwards into some bushes when I came out of the store. It was just like, I, I was just seeing things so clearly, I wasn't even paying attention to things. A lens is an amazing thing. Jesus came to give us a correct lens of how to view God. Jesus came to put a face on God. Here's something interesting. You and I are to put a face on Jesus. People look at us and to see what Jesus is like, but we have to look at uh, Jesus to see what God is like. And so one of the things that Jesus did, um, if, you, if you ever want to know what God is really, really, really like, you need to look at the person of Jesus. Um, this is a message I think I've probably taught three or four times in the last 10 years, but I'm gonna be, we've always come at it from different angles, but I just could not get away from it this morning. This is just you know, stirring my heart afresh again. But uh, Jesus came to reveal the Father in a new and an actually perfect way. And so he said things like this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, that, that's just a wild passage. I mean, if you want to know, whatever you see Jesus doing, he's like, I'm just doing it as a mirror of what my Father is really like. Jesus came for a primary purpose. He came to reveal the Father. Of course, he came to die. Of course, he came to take our place in death and raise from the dead and bring us a newness of life and shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins, the healing of our bodies, the abundant provision of our finances, the protection, the restoration of our souls, all that stuff. I've done whole sermons on this. We'll do more sermons on all that, continuing going forward. He came to destroy the works of the devil, give us access to the kingdom of God, make it possible for us to go to heaven. Absolutely. But even in all that, he had one supreme objection. He came to reveal what dad was really like. He said, I and the father are one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He never stepped out of his assignment. He said this, I only say what I hear the father saying. 
Every time you see Jesus speaking those words of mercy or how, whatever you see him saying, he's actually saying, this is actually what dad's like. He's putting a face on God. I only do what I see the father doing. Every interaction that you see Jesus having with somebody is really an interaction with the father. The essence of sin is fear that God does not have our best interest in heart. Remember the story of Adam and Eve? The serpent came and said, did God really say not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? He knows that if you do, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him. In other words, God's holding something back from you. You can't really trust him to provide the good life for you. So what you need to do is you need to take matters into your own hands. You need to go ahead and and grab hold of this thing for yourself because he can't really be trusted. So the result of sin is that we begin to act independent of God. I don't need God. I can do this thing on my own. We begin to be deceived. And so the result of that action is that we have an uh, an earth filled with orphaned people. People who are striving, and they're like, listen, I've got, they're striving for identity. I've got to be something. I've got to promote myself. I've got to help me. I've got to fake it so people can see me in a different way. I've got to perform at my workplace so I can be accepted. I've got to perform for my friends to be accepted. I've got to perform for God to be accepted. And Jesus came to straighten that whole mess out. He came to an orphan planet to reveal the Father. I remember we, our, our family, we took in an orphan kid one time. Well, he was, it was kind of a foster care situation. He came from a rough home life. Um, they didn't really have enough food. They were very harsh. They would actually lock up the food. So he was kind of a big kid, and they didn't really give him enough to eat. So he, they would lock up the food so he couldn't go and uh, eat everything. So I remember when we had him the first time, when we, uh, we laid out the food for the, at the dinner table, he's just eating everything as if we're not there. We just I kind of all sat there like, wow, he's like, you know how normally you kind of like judge the portions, and you're like, you know, if you're going to go first, you, no, 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 he, he is taking as much as would fit in his stomach, and we were kind of left with the scraps. I remember we went into uh, to his room, and there was a whole pack of Velveeta cheese slices gone. Not, not like, like a couple of slices, like a whole brand new pack. All the wrappers were under the bed and a whole bowl of Hershey Kisses. Um, okay, we weren't eating as healthy at that time, so stop judging me. <clears throat> okay, we're, we're doing better now. But, um, but that was like right after the big meal. And so here, here's what orphans, they don't understand, is that fathers continuously supply. And so it took weeks of him saying, listen, you're still hungry, you can have more. You don't have to hide food under your pillow. You don't have to take food in your bed at night and sneak it around. That's what he was doing. Fathers continuously supply. That's what the father came to heal. Now, I realize that there's broken homes represented in this household, in this, in this place, and horrible stories of abuse, and, and some people come from great fathers. But regardless of your background, Jesus is introducing to you a perfect father. You did not have a perfect father. My kids did not have a perfect father. It it doesn't matter. God came to set and show you what a perfect father is like. And so now it's our job to adjust to the reality of him. So many people, they keep reacting to their earthly father. And I'm just here to say, Jesus came to set that whole thing right. Just because you had a bad earthly father, that cannot keep you from the revelation of the perfect father. God is looking for that. Jesus came to reveal the father. So every time we see him interacting with somebody... We see the father. So we see the woman caught in adultery. She's thrown at Jesus' feet. The religious leaders, you can just see them with their arms folded, just ready to scold sin. <clears throat> By the way, the, the Pharisees are um, not just uh, back in the Bible. They're still on Facebook. They're well alive today, okay, ready to stone somebody who does something wrong. It doesn't matter what background they're from. Jesus never condoned the sin. I mean, here's this woman. She was guilty. She was caught in sin. And what does he do? He kneels down by her and begins writing on the sand. Now, I've heard lots of sermons trying to figure out, like, what Jesus wrote in the sand, and they're all fascinating. We don't know. I typically just believe the last sermon I'm heard. I'm like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. 
And so some people are like, you know, he's writing down the name of the sins, you know, other people who are committing. Maybe she's writing down the name of the guys that she had slept with, whatever it might be. Whatever it was, as he kneels down next to her, it released such an atmosphere of grace that those with the law in their heart ran for their lives. What's happening right here? Jesus is having a father-daughter moment. That's what fathers do. They step in and they protect their kids. And they restore them. They cover their shame. He is perfect in every single way. Let me say this. God is as good as he is holy. God is as good as he is holy. There's never a a toleration of sin. Grace doesn't tolerate sin. But what it does, it enables you to receive so much goodness that enables you to step out of that sin. Religion tells you, you're on your own, you better stop it. Grace comes in and says, I love you so much, let me help you out of this in my strength, not yours. That's what fathers do. Jesus comes and reveals the Father. It's really an awkward thing when grace meets law. When the love of the Father meets all the wrong kinds of people. And so remember uh, uh, Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector. Tax collectors, I mean, like IRS agents probably aren't like the most popular people in the world. Like, no offense, you know, if some of you are sitting here, don't come visit me, you know. Don't audit me because I'm saying this. But the, uh, the tax collectors back in Israel were even worse. They were actually, uh, they were working for the Roman government who was enslaving Israel. And their job was to go and extract uh, taxes from these unruly Jews. But whatever extra money they got, they got to keep from themselves. So not only were they helping support the oppressors, but they got to live off of whatever they cheated their own people out of. See, they were hated people. They were the scum of the earth. And um, Jesus, uh, Zacchaeus, he encounters such a grace from God. As he, Remember, he's sitting up on the tree. He sees Jesus passing by that he wants Jesus to come to his house. And it's interesting. Jesus never pointed out his sin. Never said, you, you lousy sinner. You're so lucky that I'm here. Do you know who I am? And uh, I'm not saying it's never wrong to point out sin. I'm not, I'm not trying to apply that. The point is that this guy who was on the outskirts of society was hated. There was something about him that, uh, that he wanted to be with God. Can you imagine having a bank account full of stolen money, knowing like it's all crooked money, and you're like, I just want to be with this guy. I want to be with this holy man. What was it about this grace that he was portraying? What's he doing? He's showing the Father. You've got prostitutes who break all protocol. And so the, they come, they storm this party where Jesus is at. I mean, first of all, they shouldn't have been prostitutes. And then they break into this rabbi's house, this religious leader. Jesus is eating, and this woman falls down, and she begins weeping at his feet so hard that she begins washing his feet with her tears and using her hair to wash the feet. I mean, that's like a great story. Read that. Wow, that's really heartwarming. I want you to picture yourself there. I mean, this is kind of scandalous. I can imagine the disciples are like, Jesus, can't you just give her like a nice side hug and like send her on her way? Like, this is really starting to become a scene. And, uh, you know, what does Jesus do? He revealed something else. He said, this story is going to be told wherever wherever the gospel is told. He began to let her do it, and she actually ended up becoming one of his followers. Jesus showed a different way. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. What's he saying? When you see Jesus, you see God. There is zero difference between the two. They are completely one. When you see the man of the Gadarenes, perhaps the most demon-possessed person in the whole Bible, it says he had a legion of demons. So this guy, his issues had issues. All right, like he had a lifetime subscription to issues. Okay, this guy had problems. And um, he, he runs to Jesus. What was it about a demon-possessed man that he saw something in Jesus that he ran to him, fell at his feet, and Jesus says, all you guys, out of there. Sets this guy free. 
It's like Jesus said, it doesn't matter how many generations have been cursed or bondage, you've come to the right place. This is what the Father's like. Be free. And it said he's clothed and in his right mind. And it's, it's interesting because it says that the whole t- he went back to his hometown and they were all afraid. Now remember, beforehand, this guy's running around naked, breaking chains, like eating the cats and dogs of the pets of other people. I didn't like a wild man. They were fine when he was like that. But now he's clothed in his right mind. They're like, ah, who is this? Religion's an interesting thing. Blind Bartimaeus, here's this crowd of people. Everybody's pressing on Jesus. And and he's walking, and here's this one guy yelling, Son of David, have mercy on me. What does he say? He says, bring him to me. Right in the midst of all this need, all this stuff. I mean, he's the most in-demand person, and he sees the one person's need. Bring him to me. What's he doing? He's revealing the Father. Jesus' first miracle is an interesting one because it wasn't because of great need. He's at a wedding, and these people apparently didn't have enough money to keep the party going. Uh, Jewish weddings lasted typically seven days, and so lots of eating, drinking wine, and all, all sorts of stuff. And so they run out of wine. And so to me, it's like, hey, just you know, get something else. You know, pull out the, the lemonade or something like that. And so, but in that culture, it would have been very embarrassing. And so it's interesting. Jesus' first miracle that demonstrates who he was was he basically just extended a party so that people wouldn't be embarrassed. What's that sound like? It, it sounds like a father. I remember when we were kids, we used to go to this restaurant called Duff's. I don't think they have them anymore. But when you were a kid, it was kind of like an endless trough of carbohydrates is basically what it was. And so we would go there on Sundays. It was kind of it was kind of like a golden corral, but not as nice. <laughs> You're getting the picture, all right? And so I uh, <clears throat> never thought that phrase would be uttered about Golden Corral. No offense if you're a Golden Corral owner. And so, um, and so I remember this guy, he, uh, he, he didn't have a lot of money, but he wanted to kind of just do something generous that day. And so we had a large party of people with us, and he just announced, hey, I'm going to pay for the thing. And I remember when he, uh, he looked at the bill, and he kind of had a look of surprise on it. And so... Uh, nobody else saw this except me. I saw my dad reach in his wallet, pulled out enough money that he knew would cover it, went and put it in the guy's hand in a handshake so that he wouldn't be embarrassed because he ran out of money. What happened there? That was the heart of the father. He just wanted to supply the need so that the people wouldn't be embarrassed. I'd like to suggest to you the whole difficulty that we have in believing God for the miraculous is we just don't understand how good of a father he is. Jesus gave us this simple test, Matthew 7, 11. If you then, being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. In other words, you guys aren't perfect. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Jesus is saying, listen, just compare what a normal parent would do for their kids, and that should at least give you an indicator of what God's will is. If you would not put sickness on your kid to teach them a lesson, um, no good parent would. You'd be arrested for child abuse. You'd be a horrible person, right? Then God would not put sickness on them. If you do not desire for your kids to be in poverty and squandering and not have, listen, if you desire for your kids to have good things and just, you don't want those things to get their heart, but you want them to be well provided for, how much more the Heavenly Father? You know what it means to take the Lord's name in vain? I used to think it meant to, to like cuss, to say one of the four-letter words and stuff like that. Here's what, the, here's what it means in context. It's when you speak in his name and you misrepresent him. It's when you say, this is what God is like when he's actually not like that. This is the whole reason Moses did not get to go into the promised land, as he represented God as angry when God wasn't angry. Remember, God's like, speak to the rock. He's like, stupid Israelites, bang, bang, smacks the rock. The Bible says that rock actually represented Christ. He represented God as angry. He was God's messenger. When God wasn't angry, God said, speak to the rock. 
And for that reason, he misrepresented God's name and he did not get to go into the promised land. The church is full of prophets who are misrepresenting God as, misrepresenting God as angry when he's not angry. There's a whole group of people that think if they stop praying that San Francisco is going to have to go fall into the ocean from God's judgment. He's going to send some kind of earthquake. God is not judging San Francisco. He's not judging any group of people. He's not judging ISIS. He's not judging Republicans. He's not judging Democrats. He judged Jesus. Jesus became sin. He poured out his wrath on sin, not on his son. He poured it out on what his son became. He actually became the embodiment of sin. He poured that out. So all he has is grace and peace for you. He is never looking at you ticked off, disappointed. I know his, when my kids sin, I mean, when they do something, it hurts my heart because I see, I see what's lacking and I want to supply what's missing. That's what it says when the Holy Spirit comes to convict you of your righteousness. He's coming to supply in his strength what's missing from your experience of him. Guys, he's just good. I'm not saying that there won't one day be a judgment, but the judgment for the believer is going to look like your rewards. <laughs> and what if hell is just the best that God can do for some people? You know, have you ever seen a kid who you're trying to hug them and they just didn't want the hug, and they're squirming and they're trying to get away, and it's like that hug is a torture? What if that's what hell's like? Is God's love coming to people who don't want it and actually becomes like a torture to them? What if he's better than you thought? <laughs> the Lord's name in vain is to announce him to the world that he's different than who he is. I remember, uh, just so you personally know, my dad is the best guy that I know. He's just, he's always, I've grown up in just knowing nothing but kindness and, and goodness. He's just been awesome to me. And uh, so my sister was over at a friend's house one day, and my friend's dad was just a real character. He just had a real problem with gossip. It was just kind of negative about everything. And so my sister was very kind, and she just, uh, she didn't really say a whole lot. But he begins kind of talking smack about my dad to my sister and starts accusing my dad of something. And so she had something rise up in her where she is pointing her finger in his chest saying, you are a liar. Now, if you knew my sister, you would know that this was like totally out of character for her. But something had so misrepresented our father's name that it employed her to do something about it. I'm not trying to provoke you to argue with people, but I'm trying to settle this issue in your heart where God is good and there's nothing anybody can say, nothing you can see, taste, hear, smell, or feel that will change that. Because here's the deal, gang. Whoever God is to you, he will be through you. He's either an angry judge looking for faults, looking to correct everybody, or he's a compassionate father looking to bless and partner with his kids to transform the planet. Here's an interesting thing. It says the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Here's another way uh, some translations say it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Repentance is not just, I'm sorry, forgive me. That's a result of repentance. Repentance is a changing of your mind. I'm seeing things more clearly, and as a result, my life's doing a 180. So it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. What if your mind can only be as renewed as the goodness of God that you experience? I'm talking about a new lens. I'm talking a repentance, a changing of the way you see things, and it only comes from encountering his goodness. You know, it's interesting. Moses had several trips up the mountain. He went up there a couple different times with God, but it was only when he encountered God's goodness 
Remember, God's like, I'm going to make all my goodness pass by you. I bet you that took a while. <laughs> all God's goodness, I mean, I could have taken up a good part of the 40 days up there while he's doing that. And he sees that. He has an encounter with God's goodness, and his face began to shine only after that encounter. Jesus taught us to pray. How did he teach us to pray? Um, our eternal scrutinizer. Oh, Russian judge from the Olympics who always give low scores. Oh, blessed cosmic cop always looking to put the bust on me. No. He said, our father. He used a, he used a, a term of endearment uh, in the Aramaic. It's, uh, it might go something like this. Abba, dear father. Oh, daddy. What does he say? You're, uh, uh, our father who art in heaven. I think a lot of people picture that as, you know, God in a galaxy far, far away. But there was three levels of heaven in the Jewish thought. How do we know this? Paul went to the third heaven. A little Jewish arithmetic tells us there was a first and second heaven. There was a third heaven, right? And so the first heaven um, represented the, uh, the second heaven represented kind of the angelic realm, where the, kind of the realm of the supernatural. The third heaven was where God's throne is. And the Jewish thinking, the first heaven was the atmosphere right around people. And so when it said God spoke out of heaven, it wasn't some booming coming out of the sky. It was right next to them. And that's why they're freaking out. They're falling down. They're scared to death. And so here's the way you can translate it. Dear Father, always near me, close is the air that I breathe. He's like, that's how you start off the prayer. Matthew 6, verses 25 through 26. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, nor about your body, what you're going to put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? If you enter the kingdom of God, you understand that everything you have is God's, and he has got a whole lot more. I remember we, I went over to a friend's house. When I was, uh, we lived in uh, Granville, Ohio at this time. And I, saw, I was probably like 10 or 11. Oh, yeah, represent for Granville there. So I was probably like 10 or 11. And I went into this uh, friend's house, and his uh, family was Jewish. That's all that I knew. And I knew that his dad owned a toy store. And so uh, we went there. And so the, the father was like, hey, why don't you get something from the toy store? So I went and I got a pack of gum. <laughs> Whole toy store, pack of gum. Adam, my friend, he, um, I mean, he's, he's loading up the cart. I mean, he already had more toys than any kids in the block, and so he, uh, he got all this stuff. And so once I saw that, I'm like, wow, I got the pack of gum. He's, he's got like, you know, video games, bicycles, all sorts of stuff. And um, so the dad finally convinced me, at least take a new bike home. I mean, who goes over to our friend? I mean, I went from a pack of gum to a bike, okay? One understood the nature of his father. The other did not understand the nature of his father. Adam was like, hey, my dad's got a whole store. <laughs> People who are afraid to give of their finances, they just haven't heard the news. They haven't heard the news that their father is good. And that if they give away something, he's going to resupply it. And he's got plenty more left. See, when you entered into the kingdom of God, you entered into a spiritual realm which you are no longer in charge of caring for yourself. I'm not saying you don't have to work. That's part of our stewardship. That's part of our worship. I'm not saying you just sit on the couch and checks start flying into you. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But I am saying the pressure is off from you having to provide for your basic needs because you have a father. Bill Johnson says, God is better than you think, so change how we think. 
John 10, 37, Jesus said, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. It's interesting, the, the works in, in the book of John are always miracles, signs, wonders, supernatural, and he called them the works of his Father. He said, you don't have to believe me. It's interesting. And so, I mean, Jesus had lots of things confirming who he was. Remember, there was a star. I mean, all of the heavens actually, uh, you know, moved so that this star could go and represent Jesus. Remember this? And angelic choir, angels announce his birth to different people. An angelic choir comes at his birth. Um, at his uh, baptism, this is the heavens part open. The voice of the Father comes over him. The dove coming down. All these things. Jesus, uh, all the Old Testament prophets foretold him. Remember this? Jesus says, you can skip all that. If I don't do miracles, you don't have to believe a word I say. Don't you just long for us as a church to rise up to that place where we can say to people, listen, <laughs> if I don't do miracles, you don't have to believe a word I say. Wouldn't that be amazing? But he says, I'm doing the works of the Father. Why was this so important that he demonstrated the miraculous? Because it's an incomplete revelation of what dad's like unless you see supernatural provision breaking into your life. It's not good enough to just have the theory of God, and God is good all the time, all the time God is good, and, and we quote the right things. He's actually wanting you to enter into a reality where you know by experience, I, I could never doubt his goodness. If something's happening bad in my life, goodness, um, it's not God. It has to be another variable in the equation. It's not God who's trying to torment me with this thing. There's got to be something else going on here. Um, Jesus had a friend named Lazarus. It said he loved Lazarus. And uh, Lazarus got sick. Jesus gets this report that Lazarus is sick. And what you'd expect Jesus to do is like, oh, my good friend is sick. Let's go heal him. Here's what Jesus says. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then Jesus waits two days until Lazarus dies. Then he waits another couple days and gets there after Lazarus is dead for four days. I want you to think about this. <laughs> then Jesus goes on in, uh, in John eleven fifteen. 15. Uh, he says, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let's put this thing together. This is interesting. Jesus is like, this is going to happen so that um, this isn't going to lead to death. It's going to lead to my glory. I'm glad I wasn't there, otherwise I might have healed him, but I, I wanted you to believe instead. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if he would have been there and healed him, don't you think they would have believed? When you know what our Father is like, you learn that delayed answers are never punishment. They're always for greater glory. When you know what our Father is like, you learn that delayed answers are never punishment. They're always for greater glory. This is happening so that I can be glorified. God's looking to bring us into a confidence in who he is to the point where we just place trust in him. It's not this mental agreement. It's not this concept, yes, uh, God is good. According to this verse, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about every fiber of your being, being able to abandon yourself under the goodness of God because that's who he is. It's actually casting the weight of our lives into a place of trust. The issue of trust comes out of discovery of what he's like. Your faith will only explore the level of goodness that you see God having. You're never going to, here's another word for faith, trust, confidence, reliance upon, abandoning myself to this person. You're never going to abandon yourself to somebody that you don't believe is good. In whatever area of your life that you don't believe he's good in, you will never, your faith will never search out those areas. Your faith is going to be limited to your revelation of his goodness. That's why it says it's the kindness, it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. That's what's going to help you see things straight. 
I never question his goodness because it's impossible for him to not be good. There has to be another factor. There has to be another issue in the equation. I don't like delayed answers, but I need them. Faith brings answers. Delayed answers bring answers with character. Listen, gang, God is not interested in filling your wallet or giving you one more testimony of blind eyes being open. He loves doing that. That's not the purpose why you're here. He's interested in people whose abandonment and trust upon him have so molded their lives that they actually begin to look like Jesus. As we trust him, as we engage with him, we actually begin to remind God of his son. He's filling the earth with a bunch of lookalikes of his son because he loves his son that much. James 1.17. I'm circling in for a landing for those of you who are just wondering. James 1.17. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father. Something's in your life. Is it good? Where is it from? God. Let's just make this thing really simple. It doesn't have to be any more complicated. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in heaven. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Anything that's good is a gift from God. I know what it looks like on just a a smaller human level. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it's like for God. He's got all these good gifts, and he wants to give them to you, and he's just waiting for you to believe. That's it. Like, well, hold on, Jim, I believe. Well, that's a whole other subject. Here's what it looks like at Christmas around our house is um, I have a horrible time waiting to give my family good gifts. Like, really bad time. Like, I think, I think the earliest we, I started, we always started opening presents was about three weeks. Like, I will buy the present, and it is burning in my hands. I'm like, Mary, uh, I got you a gift. Do you want it? She's like, no, I want surprises. I'm like, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to handle it. And so I'll like wrap it. I'm like, do you want to open it? I mean, ask her. I'm like bugging them. I'm like begging them to open the pre- I'm begging the kids, please open the presents. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> What's that? That's the heart of a father, delighting to give good gifts. When Mary and I started dang- dating, we fell in love pretty quickly. It was probably embarrassing to watch from the outside world. I would say after uh, probably about two or three months, we were one step below baby talk to each other. I mean, we were gooey. We were all over each other. I mean, it, we took up the space of one seat when we were sitting next to each other. I mean, it was just bad, okay? And so, so I, we're, we wanted to go kind of look at, I wanted to see what kind of ring she liked. And so this is after dating like four or five months or something. And there's this, so she's on Christmas break. And so I thought I'd kind of be sly to my dad. I was like, hey, dad, I'm thinking about buying mom uh, something nice for Christmas. You know, I had like no job. I mean, you know, I, I knew he could see right through this lie. And um, well, actually, I thought I could fool him. And so there's this place in Michigan, in Southfield, Michigan, there's this um, building that has six different floors, and it's all filled with jewelry stores. They call it the Den of Thieves because it's just like, it's all haggling, and it's just all this stuff. And it's just, it's a rough place. And so Mary and I went down there to look, at, uh, to look at the diamonds. We took a class, so we knew what the cut, color, clarity, and carrot was, the four C's. So we go in there. And so it was awesome because I was actually teaching them. I'm like, no, we're not paying this because of this, and plus I have no money. And so, um, 
So we go down there, and so that's like, a, that's like December. So we start dating in August. So like by December, we're like looking at rings secretly. But <clears throat> I still had, in like, I had some more school to do still. And so I remember in June, Dad comes to me. And he's like, Jim, I know you are crazy about Mary. I'm like, what gave it away, you know? <laughs> and so uh, he's like, well, what's stopping you from getting married, you know, from, from proposing to her? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't have money for a ring. And uh, he said, well, what if I could help with that? I said, what do you mean? And so my great-grandmother had this amazing diamond, uh, diamond stone, Grandma Johnson. Uh, and so she uh, passed it down to my grandma, Grandma Baker. Grandma Baker will be 99 this month. Yes, she still drives, has her own house, goes shopping almost every day, closet full of new clothes. She's always dressed in like the cutest accessories. She's just adorable. I, we got to get her back down here. And so she, she has a hard time driving far. But uh, last time she came, we're like, Grandma, what'd you think? She says, well, Jim didn't wear a suit, but I felt the Holy Spirit. I'm like, you know what? We'll take it. We'll take it, Grandma. And so grandma gets this ring. And <clears throat> so here's the story in our situation. There's only two grandsons, and the rest are all granddaughters. And so my dad went to grandma and said, listen, it'd be kind of unfair for you to give the diamond to one of the granddaughters, since there's so many of them. There's only two grandsons, and the other one's married. What do you think about giving this diamond to Jim? And grandma's like, I, I love the idea. I think that would be great. She said, um, the problem is I lost it. <laughs> and she's like, oh, no. And so, um, she, uh, so she's doing it. Like a couple days later, she's doing the laundry, and so she lost it years ago, and she looks, and there's the diamond stuck in the drain. Luckily, it was big, so it didn't go down. Um, the diamond was stuck in the drain for years. It had stayed there, and my dad said that. She looks in there and picks it up and uh, gives it to my dad. And my dad. So I said, Dad, what do you mean? He says, he tells me that story, and he pulls out this diamond. And I wish you could have seen the look on his face. He delighted in giving that to his son. That's the heart of the father. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave. I mean, I, I, am, I am devoted to my kids to the extreme. I mean, I just think about my love for them. And to think of the kind of love that the father had to send his son as a gift. It's, just, it's beyond anything I can, I can actually imagine. See, here's how it worked, gang. Here's the big picture. The father planned this whole thing. Yeah, the kids are going to screw up, but I've got this plan. It's going to cost us everything, but I want to bring it so all of them can be in my family. And then the son volunteered and says, I'll pay for it, Dad. The sacrifice always had to go willingly. So the son says, I'll pay for it. And then he sent the Holy Spirit so that you could experience the reality of it and not just have a theory of it. See, without the Holy Spirit, we could do lectures on kissing, but, but the Holy Spirit comes and just brings you a big wet smacker right on the lips. Without the Holy Spirit, we could talk about the theory of laughter and the mechanics of laughter. But when the Holy Spirit comes, you just experience a big belly laugh. We can talk about the Father's love and, and uh, the Jesus revealing the Father. And it's just all theory until the Holy Spirit comes and says, this is what I'm like, boy. This is what I'm like, girl. I'm gonna, we're going to close with something that's going to be really fun. First, I want to read you. This is probably my favorite passage of any book. It comes from a book called Jesus with Dirty Feet. And I, I don't know, it just absolutely has captured me. And then we're going to do an activation. So actually, if the ushers could pass out those, uh, those sheets, that would be awesome. We're going to do a really fun thing. But as they're doing this, just listen to these words. There was just something so clear and beautiful and true and unique and powerful about Jesus that old rabbis would marvel at his teachings 
young children would run up and sit in his lap. Ashamed prostitutes would find themselves weeping at his feet. Whole villages would gather together to hear him speak. Experts in debate of the law would find themselves speechless. And people from the poor to the rugged working class to the unbelievably wealthy will leave everything to follow him. That's our Jesus. And whenever you see him, you see the Father. So we're going to do an exercise out of Psalm 23. And so there's something on the front and back. So the, uh, the front side has the New King James Version, which are probably more familiar to you. The back side has the, the Passion Translation in Psalm 23. So what I want you to do is once it's passed out, I'm going to give you guys three minutes. I want you to just take your time. The goal isn't for you to read through both of them. The goal is that these translations work their way through you. So as you're reading, if you've got a pen, if you want to circle something, underline something, jot some notes in the margin, just something that hits you. I want you to just really take your time through it. I'd rather have you get through a few verses and have it be meaningful than for you to just speed read and not really get anything out of it. So we're going to do this exercise, and then I'm going to kind of do a reading to you uh, to help you encounter the truth of this passage, then we're going to call it a day. Sound good? Hey, can we get some music on back there, maybe without words? I'm sorry to spring that on you guys. A little traveling music. Is there anyone who did not receive a, a sheet of paper that wants one? Did you just slip up your hand? Miss anybody? Okay, it looks like that row right there from Grandma. Anybody else are we missing? Over here, Paul, would you get a second? Over on the, on the corner there, thanks.
Take about another 30 seconds. All right, so I want to close with kind of a reading that relates to Psalm 23. So if you could just put your papers down for a second. <clears throat> this is going to be really good. This is adapted from a book by Dallas Willard called Life Without Lack. It's a book about Psalm 23, and uh, Dallas is one of my top authors. He's one of my favorite authors. So are you guys settled in? <clears throat> just close your eyes and just let these words wash over you. The Lord is my shepherd. In other words, I'm in the care of someone else. I'm not the one in charge. I've taken my kingdom and surrendered it to the kingdom of God. I am living the with God life. The Lord is my shepherd. And what follows from that? I shall not want. That's the natural result. I shall lack nothing. That's what Jesus teaches. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. What kind of a sheep lies down in a green pasture? A sheep that has eaten its fill. If a sheep is in a green pasture and she's not full, she'll be eating, not lying down. He leads me beside the still waters. A sheep that is being led beside still water is a sheep that is not thirsty. Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He restores my soul. The broken depths of my soul are healed and reintegrated in a life in union with God, the eternal kind of life that he provides. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The effect of the restoration of my soul is that I walk in the paths of righteousness on his behalf as a natural expression of my renewed inner nature. As I walk in these paths, my trust in the shepherd runs so deep that I can declare, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. A life without lack is one that carries no fear of evil. Our confidence in God soars far above wants and fears. You can abandon yourself to God's purposes because what seems dark to us is completely light to him. Nothing blinds him. <clears throat> Nothing catches him by surprise. Nothing works outside of his capacity to redeem and restore. Would you like to have a life without fear? A life of soaring faith? You can live in a life in the midst of a world dominated by fear, without fear. Why? For you are with me. Just repeat that phrase out loud with me. For you are with me. The life without lack is based upon the presence of God, and he is most clearly and fully present to us in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I know from experience that the rod and staff represent the shepherd's strength and protective care. In this safe place where I have no fear, I'm at liberty to enjoy the overwhelming generosity of my shepherd. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
Since I love my enemies, I would, not, I would not feast upon a delicious meal in their presence and let them stand there hungry. The abundance of God's provision and safety in my life is so great, I would invite them to enjoy what God has prepared for me. You anoint my head with oil. Here you might think in terms of hot showers and warm, fluffy towels, things that make us feel clean, comfortable, and special, and how God makes that possible. He is not only interested in me having something wonderful to eat, but also in blessing me with a life that is full and free and powerful in him, including clothing, comfortable furnishings, joyful experiences, and deep relationships. So much so that the abundance of God's provision rings out from the psalmist's pen. My cup is full. Is that what it says? No. My cup runs over. I have more than my cup will hold. So much so that I can be as generous as my shepherd without fear of ever running out. So much so that I'm convinced that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a description of the eternal life available to us now in the kingdom of the heavens. It's the abundant with God life that comes from following the shepherd. Where we dwell and abide with God in the fullness of his life a life in which all the promises of Christ's gospel are realized. Because of this, we have no reason to be anxious. The world is a perfectly safe place for us to be. Amen. Isn't that a beautiful way of looking at Psalm 23? So as we close, here's what I'd like to do is uh, perhaps you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You never put your trust in him. Uh, You never abandon your life to him. I'm not talking about believing facts about him 2,000 years ago or you know, understanding the intricacies of the gospel. I'm talking about have you actually taken your life and put your full confidence in him? God, I can trust you. I'm abandoning my life to you. If you've never done that, I'd like to just give you an opportunity. You, you've heard the good news today that this kind of life is available by putting your trust in him. And so if you're here today and you do not know Jesus, but you're like, man, I, I, my heart, I want as much of Jesus in my life as possible. I'm ready to trust him. If that's you today, I just want to take a moment. And if you just raise your hand, And uh, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. And so here's how we do it at Zion. Every eye open, every head up, everyone looking around. And so uh, this is a time to to be bold and make a stand for Jesus. And so if that's you, just go ahead and raise your hand proud, and we want to just pray a prayer of agreement with you. Is there anybody in here? You do not know Jesus, but today's your day. You with the pounding heart and the sweaty hands, I'm talking to you. It's not a word of knowledge, it's just experience. Anybody in here, you do not know Jesus. All right, awesome. We've got a room full of family. If you did not respond to that, our, our prayer teams will be here at the end. We'd love to pray with you. And uh, if you have uh, recently given your life to Jesus, you're going to want to get water baptized. There's, uh, it's an act in which going into the water doesn't just get you wet. Actually, spiritually, something's released where there's a cutting away of the sin nature. There's a dying to the old man, and God always blesses obedience. And so there's, we, we got whole messages on this stuff, but it's, it's powerful. So if you guys could stand for closing prayer. How many of you feel better than when you came in? That's good. All right. Me too. Lord, we love you. And I, I just, one of my mentors says this, thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. What an amazing idea to put a face on God. And to Holy Spirit, give us the strength to put a face on Jesus. Hey, before we close, guys, I just want to just, if you're having difficulty in your marriage, 
the good news is not that there's principles in Scripture so that you can try harder and have a better marriage. The good news of Scripture is that there's grace available from Jesus that will enable you to be a better husband. There's grace that's available to Jesus that helps you help you be a more loving wife. It's not about trying harder. It's about tapping into strength from another realm so that you can live more and more out of his strength and less and less out of your strength. And so, Lord, whatever difficulty is going on in here, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's a parenting issue, whether it's a marriage issue, a finance issue, a healing in the body, Lord, I thank you that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, there's grace available to come and completely change that situation around. Hope will not get you the answer, guys. Hope is always future tense. Faith is now. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. So if you're saying someday this will happen, I believe God can do it, you are not going to receive the answer until you step into faith. Faith says it's mine now because of what Jesus has done. Amen. Amen.